0: Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com.
1: You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is alan Smith. Let's get stupid.
0: Baltimoreans. Hello Baltimoreans. What is going on with you? It's been a little while. Uh, We hope that you have been watching and enjoying the delightful realities of baseball being actually played by actual baseball players down down there in the southern hemisphere of the United States.
1: There are baseball things happening in Florida and non-baseball things happening in Blue Jays camp.
0: Yeah, it's been a real rough go of it so far for the Jays, huh?
1: Run it down for me, Smith.
0: So we got Michael Saunders, who was uh, shagging some fly balls and stepped on a sprinkler head and tore his uh, knee up, although he seems to be recovering quite well from that that whole process. Um, Ostensible Jays ace, Marcus Stroman, out for the year after uh, attempting to bunt which is something that there's really no reason for him to ever do because he plays in the American League.
1: league, baby. Inner league. I
0: mean, okay, fine, but to just take the outs,
1: man. Take the outs. No, no
0: league is a valuable part of the <laughs> modern game, Smith. It's and then, important. And then news today, your boy Kevin Pillar, uh, who I always just assume is Kevin Millar trying to get a couple more reps in, hurt <laughs> himself sneezing mm. out a week to 10 days because he uh, strained an oblique. Sneezing on Saturday morning. My question is, are are we sure that baseball players are athletes, Sam? Uh
1: well, I I'm not sure about that. I, <laughs> in the words of John Cuck, I ain't an athlete, I'm a baseball player, lady. <laughs> but I have I have four words for the Toronto Blue Jays organization, and those four words are karma is a bitch. <laughs> Bitches, keep your hands off of our
0: vice president of baseball operations. <laughs>
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 118 of Baltimore the show that, like presumptive Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, doesn't always communicate with you as well as you'd prefer. And obviously it hasn't worked out that way. I'm just not sure I'm ready for Hillary, Sam. I'm not, I'm not
0: there. I'm trying. I'm trying to get ready. I'm not there.
1: Alan, it's going to be smooth sailing. <laughs> it's going to be just... It's going to be a Clinton against a Bush... And we all know how well those things go. We've got a fantastic show for you this (laughs) evening, folks. Speaking of fearless leaders, in just a few minutes, we'll be joined by Mina Kimes, a senior writer at ESPN the magazine, who recently wrote a piece making the case that the U.S. government should appoint a sports czar to keep tabs on all the malfeasance and tomfoolery that you listen to Baltimoreans to get stressed out about. If she does that
0: then I would be willing to support a Hillary Clinton presidency. <laughs> Are
1: you listening, Hillary?
0: <laughs> the if you coveted want,
1: Baltimore Ons vote is there for the taking. Our endorsement is available at a price. <laughs> of course, no episode of Baltimore Ons would be complete without our most popular recurring segment, the Larry Bigby Franchise Report. The lair bear broke out in a big way for the 2004 Orioles, who, it can be easy to forget, weren't quite as much of a laughingstock as other squads from the 14-year itch. Finishing in third place with a record of 78-84. and 84. Is that what we're calling it now, the 14-year itch? I'm, I'm trying it out on right. this episode. I, I want to see I like it. I what, like people,
0: it. what people think of it. Let us know, Baltimoreans. at bmorons. How do you feel about the 14-year itch as a collective uh, understanding of the unmentionable period in Orioles history?
1: Which is the other option for a name for it. <laughs> Bigby was easy to miss in a lineup that included Miguel Tejada, Rafael Palmero, Javi Lopez, Melvin Mora, Brian Roberts, and BJ Surhoff. But he swatted 15 homers and anchored an outfield that otherwise included Luis Matos and Jay Gibbons, setting expectations racing as the sun rose over the 2005 edition of the team, and it looked to improve on its most respectable season since the vaunted Ray Miller era. As a sidebar, that right there is the only time in history that the words <laughs> vaunted and Ray Miller era have ever appeared in the same sentence. And there it goes, past you into the rearview mirror of history. Bigby, of course, regressed heavily in 2005 and was out of baseball by 2006. And so, Baltimoreans, we thought it prudent on this chilly March evening, with Steve Pierce batting a robust 357 through his first 14 plate appearances this spring, to remind ourselves that not all fairy tales have happy endings, (laughs) especially when you're counting on them to log significant innings in left field. Now, one place you don't have to worry about unreliable production is the Baltimore Sports Report Network, of which we're a proud member alongside our Sister Wife podcasts. As we look ahead to the remainder of this episode, friends, we'd like to imagine that morale is high. After all, there are breaking balls snapping in the Sarasota breeze, and Gary Thorne is rebuilding his tolerance after his customary winter of temperance. (laughs) And yet, something feels a little bit amiss, wouldn't you say? We're not quite ready to begin this thing in earnest, are we? Something critical, some abstract narrative epoxy, is as is customary on these particular airwaves, missing. Fortunately, my esteemed colleague Alan Smith is here, as always, to rectify that situation.
0: Here we are on episode 118, which represents, Sam, a distracting formula. Because you see, when you add up the numbers 20, Jorge, are you kidding me? That was a ball and I should know I'm a catcher, Posada. Number 46... Andy, the only man God forgave for steroids, Pettit, and number 51, Bernie, front row seats to greatness, Williams, you get 117 in total numbers being retired by the Yankees this year. And I'm going to posit that all 117 of those numbers are here to distract us from the final number in 118, one Alex Rodriguez. The Yankees are doing whatever they can to Treat Arod like an unwanted Christmas goldfish, hoping that if they only leave him alone for long enough, he will be found floating belly up in his little bowl. And they can, after expressing a moment of feigned and totally insincere grief, flush him down the toilet. Sadly for the Yankees and their payroll, however, Arod has failed to take the hint. Writing what I would call a fairly absurd open apology letter and showing up for spring training three days early uh, to hit some dingers. To the fans, he wrote, I take full responsibility. His actions, however, have suggested anything but taking full responsibility, and the rest of the apology that he penned essentially reads like a birds and bees discussion with your parents, in that it's awkward, mortifying, and trying very, very hard not to address the central issue head on. So what do these selfsame Yankees fans think about this letter? that apologizes for dragging the name of their once-great organization through some very deserving mercenary mud. With apologies to Andy Zaltzman, the greater Yankees diaspora seems to be responding to the whole thing in a manner not dissimilar to a golden retriever playing chess. Confused, not sure of the rules, and hung up on some serious logistical concerns, but willing to go along for the ride in exchange for treats. Or in this case, home runs. But you know, Sam, the thing that warms my heart in all of this is that finally... Finally, baseball has taken some real decisive action in the steroid scandal that has put a dark cloud over the game that we love so very dearly. They've sprung into action a full 20 years after the stats were at their juice dist, and really gotten down to it by putting Anthony Bosch in jail for four years. I suppose the logic of jailing the head of the Biogenesis Clinic is about the same as putting a drug dealer in jail. Because those highly paid and alpha male players who purchase said performance-enhancing drugs are essentially the same easily bullied schoolchildren who must be protected from the scary doctors who force HGH into their buttocks. But really, is there anything more apropos to sum up the Bud Selig era? On his way out, Bud has released one last official statement on the steroids issue, which reads as follows. We are very happy with the work we've done on the steroids issue, and we're fully confident that it is not still happening. But if it was, it wouldn't be that big a deal. We're going to punish anyone who was involved harshly, if there were people, but there are not people, because there's no problem. But if they did exist, they would be terrible people deserving of punishment, only it's not a big deal. And we fixed it, only we haven't, but we could, but it isn't a problem, so we won't. But we all know we could, But why would we? Not a big deal.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Larry Bigby Franchise Report, where each week we take the three most pressing news items from Birdland and beyond and assign them a ranking ranging from strikeout to home run. First up this week, the Orioles' already crowded infield picture has grown fatter, inversely proportionate to the outfield picture. (laughs) Aha! Yes, indeed. Yeah, that's what I'd say. Yep, yep. In that we have so many infielders and so few outfielders Specifically, we now have one Everth Cabrera, who, as MLBTradeRumors.com is quick to point out, is not only coming off a steroid suspension, but may also stand trial for assault at some point in 2015. But never you mind, in 2012... In 2013, he put up some really good numbers. Uh, They, of course, omit the fact that those were obviously the years when he was using performance-enhancing drugs. That has not stopped Dan Duquette from handing Everth Cabrera the largest guaranteed contract money of any free agent that we signed this year. $2.65 million, I believe. pretty pretty low bar. (laughs) (laughs) More than the illustrious sums achieved by Wesley Wright and Delman Young. Alan Smith... How would you rank the signing of Everth Cabrera? I'm going to rank the signing of Everth Cabrera as a strikeout if you're
0: Ryan Flaherty. Okay. <laughs> and this is, in fact, the Ryan Flaherty franchise report. For the rest of the the, the team, I would say that it's a solid triple. Uh, I'm actually very excited for the Everth Cabrera era. And going on your obese metaphor from before, I would like to think of the infield as now um, delightfully plump. Maybe sort of like the birth of Venus, the Botticelli painting of yore, (laughs) uh, which would maybe make the outfield a um, particularly twiggy supermodel. (laughs) Mm, mm. Adam Jones is out there, and then that's
1: all that they have. Um, (laughs) So the infield is, uh, what, 1640, and the outfield is (laughs) 1971. Mm. I have no idea if those dates correlate to (laughs) Botticelli and or twiggy. Actually, I only barely know who Botticelli and or Twiggy are. <laughs> we don't have time 14- to explain everything to 86. you. Ooh.
0: Sandro Botticelli. When... Anyway, I think that the Dan Duquette era seems to be perhaps an era of reclaiming former steroid abusers. Um, and I'm not sure how I feel about that, as that being my team. This is now, I suppose, another high-profile case of us picking up a piece of probably questionable moral and um, ethical character and hoping that Buck can work his magic and keep them in line for the baseball season.
1: Of course, it is hard to imagine Nelson Cruz working out any better than he did last year.
0: And I would argue that for what we've paid him, Delman Young has been an amazing investment. Yeah. I mean, I wish we were signing a few more character guys, but I think that one of the things that Dan Duquette is famous for is looking for market inefficiencies. And I think one market inefficiency he has found is people f- people's fear of a pre- previous positive steroids test. That's true. That's and true. I think that's sort of like his new thing that he's looking for and hoping that, in fact, the latent talent that was in Cabrera and Young and Cruz comes through uh, again when they have a full season under a pretty good manager. So,
1: okay, if that's the inefficiency we're going to exploit, that's fine. How do you feel about it? I am going to give it one prize claw machine at a video arcade. <laughs> you know the the prize claw machine? Yeah, 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 That's where you put in a coin, and there's a claw that you operate with a joystick, and it hovers over a bin full of prizes, and you navigate it to a certain point so that it, you think it's positioned right over the prize that you want. The claw lowers, and it looks like it's about to grab the... PlayStation 3 controller, and then at the last minute, it lurches to the left and instead <laughs> picks up the broken Pez dispenser. I think Yverth Cabrera is the broken Pez dispenser of free agents. And Wow! <laughs> <laughs> but even a broken Pez dispenser uh. may still contain some sweetness. Here is the secret sweetness of Yverth Cabrera. The last few years, as near as we can tell, Ryan Flaherty and last year Jonathan Scope did not have any pressure being exerted on them whatsoever to improve upon their meager skill sets. Yeah, there was none. We basically banished Steve Lombardozzi to Siberia early last season, despite the fact that he was hitting well and playing solid defense. It, and it may be, you know, it may be a situation where we bring in Earth Cabrera and do the same thing to him. Sure. Uh, we did the same thing with Alexi Casilla. I mean, sure. Alexi Casilla got hurt, but... Uh, It may be that because Iverth Cabrera is a former all-star and was something approaching a four-win presence in the middle of the infield, at least somewhat recently, with the performance-enhancing drugs caveat, he's a high-profile enough guy, especially based on how much we're paying him, that it seems like the organization is trying to say to Flaherty, you've never really figured out how to hit off-speed pitches. Nope. If you want to stick around, you need to do that. Your glove's great uh but we need you to do that and they're saying to jonathan scope uh the same thing in in effect um and also that jonathan scope you might want to figure out how to leverage your arm strength into an ability to play third base without looking like an idiot right um
0: playing time is going to be a little harder to come by and we have a uh, a reasonable and reputable person to fill in there yeah well uh speaking of the third base Item number two on this week's Franchise Report is uh, actually something of a poll for you, the listeners. Because we have a very interesting question as we enter baseball season, which has to do with the Orioles and third base. And also, the most myopic of podcast details, Sam Dingman's fantasy baseball team. Yes. Uh, a proud owner of young Manny Machado Indeed. on his organization uh, has, the as the Duquettes regrets, a very serious... Conundrum coming up very soon. You see, we are at a keeper league, and he has three keeper options. Now, one and two are spoken for. They're off the table. Um, you'll be glad to know that one of them is Adam Jones, so Indeed. he's not going to fall into the terrible clutches of Mr. Mastin or his Yankees ilk again. <laughs> but the question for you, Baltimoreans, is should Sam use his third-round pick on young Manny Machado? Sam, what ranking would you give yourself for choosing to keep Manny Machado on your team?
1: I would give... It, assuming that I keep Manny... This is a very complicated ranking. a complicated ranking. Assuming that I keep Machado, what ranking would I give yourself. the act of keeping Manny Machado?
0: Yep. You're, you're grading yourself in perpetuity here.
1: Okay. I would give myself one eccentric peanut salesman. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, much like the eccentric peanut salesman in the Baltimore Orioles seasons between 1998 and 2011. Stay with me. I'm just looking for a reason to come to the ballpark. (laughs) And uh, so it's a keeper league, as Alan said. And I would like to say from the top, Duquette's Regrets, which is the name of my fantasy team, well, this is not some some cockamamie organization. We're hardly <laughs> the best team in the semi-employed All-Stars, which is the name of our league. But this is a 20-team league. This 20 isn't one league. of your, you know, e- any of you guys doing a fantasy draft. With 12, 12 teams? 12 teams. Fuck getting you. Getting poo holes in fuck round you. nine. Get out of my face. Get out of here. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about some serious business. I would also like to say that I fully recognize that it probably doesn't make sense even in a 20 team league when you're doing a snake draft. It probably does not make sense to take to keep Manny Machado as your third keeper because it's still pretty likely that you could get someone better than Manny Machado in round 3, right? Which is that's the pick you're giving up.
0: Well, okay, but there is the one reality of the fact that most other people are keeping three people.
1: Most other people are keeping three people. Exactly. So, my issue is, and why I think this is a topic befitting discussion time on on the precious airwave hours of the Baltimore Ons podcast, which you can find at com. Obviously, a big part of the reason that I'm in this league is because it's a really fun way of staying engaged with the baseball season from a holistic standpoint, but It's also a really exciting time to be an Orioles fan and play fantasy baseball because for the first time in generations, it is a viable strategy to have (laughs) Orioles players on your team. And I have the opportunity to have Manny Machado on my team indefinitely. But the thing is...
0: It's true. This is the only year, potentially, for the next 15 years of Manny being an all-star
1: when ownership is questionable. So that's the thing. If it was you, Baltimoreans, would you keep Manny Machado? Do you think he's worth the emotional investment? Because I should also say, the person who I will not be keeping if I keep Manny Machado is Max Scherzer. <laughs> <laughs> who is, I think we can agree, a very good pitcher on a very good team, probably mm. going to win 20 games next year. Mm. Do we think that this is the year that we finally get to see true Manny? Right? Because if we assume that uh, 2013 was uh, a kind of true vision of who Manny was before he hurt the knee, do we think that we take last year and consider it a lost year, we assume that he finally now has two functional knees, are we on the brink of greatness, or have we created this inflated vision of Manny Machado because of the fact that he was part of the Mike Trout, Bryce Harper class of minor league graduates, And is he not actually going to be the franchise cornerstone that we thought he was going to be? Would you keep him if he was on your roster? Uh,
0: I would keep him on my roster. I would. Um, And I think that it's because I would find it so abhorrent to watch him be a 15 season keeper on someone else's roster. Yeah. and I, I, think, I think that this is the year when we find out the answer to those questions. I don't know. But I think that this is the year. And I think that we will not be having this discussion next year. Either we will know that he didn't quite get back and we now have a slightly slower Manny Machado who can't get quite all that far out on the third baseline to pick a ball. If that's not there anymore, we will have, we will know that by about August or September. So this is the year you have to make that decision. And every year going forward, it will be very clear to me whether he is a late round draft pick because he'll still be maybe a productive baseball player, but a late round draft pick or a clear keeper.
1: Gotcha. So this is the year we find out if we're looking at, say, uh, Brooks Robinson or Scott Rowland.
0: Yeah. Okay. I think that's fair. Okay. I think that's fair. And I think that we know that Scott Rowland is a serviceable player sure but he's not a keeper
1: could have been a hall of famer not a keeper if he'd been able to stay healthy yep All right. let us know on twitter twitter.com slash bmorons would you keep Manny Machado if he was on your fantasy team just or at bmorons that would work too yeah well you know you know I mean uh, some of us are completists from a URL standpoint
0: item number three on this week's franchise report news leaked today that the Green Bay Packers are participating in an effort to defeat right-to-work legislation in Wisconsin. Now, uh, right-to-work legislation uh, is... Sinisterly named. Sinisterly named the right-to-work legislation, which is, in fact, a weakening of collective bargaining uh, law in a state which allows people to who work at a particular place to choose not to participate in a union. Now, if uh, you are familiar with union theory, that essentially se- sinks the ability to unionize any kind of private establishment because if you are not forced to be a part of the union, you yourself will make the calculus to probably not be a part of the union. And as soon as some reasonable percentage of people opt out, then the herd immunity that, you, that unions present has atrophied and disappeared.
1: It, it's also worth noting that in pretty much any industry, if there, is an, if there is a union that exists for that industry, you probably want to be a part of it. The union is not doing anything that goes against your interests and as a worker, except in the minds of crazy Republicans,
0: um, I, I would say that that has not been entirely as true as unions would have you believe over the years. Okay, um, I would say that they're they have some seniority problems. Young people who sure. join unions now sure. are often told to wait in line for actually good jobs and good wages for a long time. So sure, there th- there are some there are some pushbacks there, but. We're talking about the Green Bay Packers, and we're talking about their decision to join on um, to fight the right to work as a part of, in some ways, the most highly profiled and successful union still existing in this country, which is the Professional Sports Players Unions. Um, It's interesting to note also that the Green Bay Packers were involved at least uh, tangentially in the Scott Walker recall effort in 2012. They threw their support at least over Twitter behind uh, recall man Tom Barrett. So it seems as though these Packers have a little bit of a progressive union label leading. Um, Sam, what ranking would you give the Packers publicly
1: uh, declaring against right to work? Let's say it's the bottom of the ninth inning. The Orioles are down 8-7. to seven. They have managed to load the bases against the Yankees. Matt Weeters comes up and hits a walk-off grand slam. Okay. Which is to say, it's great, but it's a little deceptive. (laughs) Because you didn't need a grand slam. Right. All All you needed is a single. (laughs) So uh, the reason I say this is because it's very easy for the NFL Players Union to um, come out and pat itself on the back and uh, make themselves look like they're standing up for the little people of the world against the overwhelming, um, domineering nature of capitalism and of culture and when it seems like it's it's trying to push them down but the nfl players union also stood in complete and absolute support of ray rice sure so i which i think is inexcusable so i think that there are more politics being played here than just uh what it what either side would have us believe on the surface. Sure. And this is the problem with the entire labor discussion in this country is that nobody is willing to look at the nuance of it. Mm -hmm. I think it is unequivocally true that labor unions provide benefits that should exist for workers, particularly in fields where uh, they're doing jobs that no one else wants. Cleaning hotel rooms, driving subway cars, cleaning subway cars, um, teaching classrooms full of unruly children. Picking up your garbage. All of these uh, are professions which I think deserve union protection, um, and what happens is uh, we assume that because some members of these unions are corrupt, the entire operational structure should be thrown out the window because what it's really doing is preventing the natural growth of the market. Well, that's that's nonsense. Yes. That is, that is absolute <laughs> nonsense. However, it is true that a lot of the representatives in these unions um, are just as power hungry as the people that they're supposedly doing battle with. It's also true that unions hide behind the fact that they're supposedly standing up for the little guys to take morally abhorrent positions. Um, look at the Policemen's Benevolent Association. Show sure enough in New York City. That after was a the, very
0: interesting moment for me of like realizing you know I, I have such like a uh, a. In ingrained pro-union initial reaction to things. Of and course. And then, like, listening to the, that sort of thing and realizing, oh, boy.
1: And cops, again, I, I don't want to make it sound like I am suggesting that cops should not also have a very robust <laughs> union which protects them because they are doing a job that is insanely dangerous and sure. that nobody else wants to do. However, for them to proclaim Bill de Blasio to have blood on his hands... After and to deny that the cops who murdered Eric Garner uh, don't have blood on their hands it, it just it, it defies logic and, and
0: and and it further cements the sort of like unions are intractable and unreasonable in their demands sort of logic that gets the entire labor movement in trouble to begin with.
1: yes so I think uh, when we look at this this situation with the Packers, I think it, it's an opportunity to, again, raise the flag of why in more so than in a lot of other cases, I think this issue deserves a nuanced discussion that it's almost certainly not going to get, which is to say we need to swing for the single on this one yeah. and not uh, the Grand Slam. I'm going to give
0: this, uh, this Packers decision one ten thousandth. Of a Tommy Smith Black Power salute in the 1986 Olympics. Okay. Uh, do you know this classic image of after having won a gold medal in uh, that the, the American athlete in 1968 ascended to the top of the podium in Mexico City and for the entire national anthem? threw up the black power salute
1: I have no knowledge of this
0: oh it's it, it really is one of the most amazing and powerful moments to me in sports history it was a very public display of an a fascinating com- combination of of patriotism and criticism of sort of like looking in 1968 at the civil rights movement and at the horrible things that the US government was doing to black people in this country and then to have him go out and represent his country win a gold medal, and the conflict that that sort of stirred up in him. And the bronze medalist, I believe his name is John Carlos, who is also standing on the podium with the Black Power salute. Yeah. Um, really one of the, I think, like the top 10 iconic sports photographs of all time. And to me, the Green Bay Packers doing this is, I'm going to say approximately one ten thousandth of that moment. <laughs> I really like it when athletes use their... Um, probably overly inflated social standing to throw out a political um, agenda, and I think that that's really fascinating and interesting. And sometimes they do it in ways that I don't agree with politically, uh, e.g., Peyton Manning. And often they do it in I think sort of interesting and progressive ways, especially when it comes to race. Um, and I think sort of the NBA has has recently had a lot of very interesting yeah, racial absolutely, tensions. Absolutely, you know, um people coming out with the I Can't Breathe t-shirts, yep. uh, the whole kerfuffle with the clippers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, sure. I, <laughs> Let's call that a kerfuffle. <laughs> call that a kerfuffle. Uh, and it seems to me that like the Packers are in some very small way picking up on that tradition. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really cool that a labor union is being high profile in being a labor union because yeah. we don't think of – Labor in very positive terms in this country much at all. And sort of the only time I think we do think of them positively is when we look at a bunch of kind of whiny, overpaid millionaires who happen to be unionized against a group of kind of whiny, overpaid billionaires. That is like a very interesting um Social moment that makes people who otherwise have zero exposure to any of this stuff and have thought about labor and unions not at all, it brings it up to them. Except and it makes except them.
1: I just think that's where the nuance needs to come in because I think yes. the problem is that most people in that moment don't draw, don't see the thread that connects Kobe Bryant to the guy who cleans up their trash. What we really, really need in this country is for people to react to labor disputes that happen in their public schools down the street and with their police officers and with their hotel employees, people need to recognize that the the disputes that the employees in those situations are raising are just as valid as the ones that the Major League Baseball Players Associations of the world are raising as well.
0: And it's up to a lot of people who are smarter than us and better organized than us to make that connection for them. But I think it's apropos to evoke Tommy Smith here, because I think that for an interesting moment, Americans who were otherwise racist or or worse, had never identified with what was happening in the South in this country during that moment of time, rooted for this guy, cheered him on watching him on TV, cheered him on from home, and then saw him win and then saw this photo. And... For a a group of people, that was a moment of realization that was then exploitable in conversations, in follow-ups, in like why why did this happen? It became a teaching moment that people then followed up on and taught very well and very responsibly. So the reason why I give it that ranking is because this is one of those things that's out there that happens when – Kevin Durant puts on an I Can't Breathe t-shirt, which happens when, um, you know, and, and, and in the same way that happens when a particularly famous athlete, your John Rocker, says something completely insane and homophobic, those are all teaching moments, and we need to teach with them responsibly.
1: All right, folks, well, that'll do it for the Larry Bigby Franchise Report. The show continues in just a moment.
0: Don't call it an obsession. We here at Baltimoreans have what we'd like to call a healthy interest in the chicanery that goes on behind the scenes with professional sports ownership.
1: Call me old-fashioned, but a billion tax dollars a year subsidizing the NFL just makes me come over all week at the knees. Which is why a recent ESPN The Magazine article calling for a sports czar to watch over all those crazy
0: and irresponsible owners caught our eye. The author of that piece, Mina Kimes, joins us now to talk through her modest proposal, Mina is a senior writer and columnist at ESPN the Magazine, where she writes about many of the salient stories on sports that happened beyond the field, court, rink, etc. Mina, welcome to Baltimore
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So could you just give us like 30 seconds on what exactly the czar plan would look like and your ideal rollout of what it would be?
2: Right. So the basic gist of it is that sports leagues are natural monopolies, like utilities, which means that... They both have to collude. Collusion is necessary to their existence. You know, in order to play a game, you have to have two teams agreeing on a schedule. And so in a lot of industries, when companies collude, that breaks the law. But in sports, it's part of sports, right?
0: <laughs> key, even.
2: It's key to it, right. And then the other aspect of it is that there is no competition. So they're not the NFL, MLB and the NBA and tell <laughs> aren't pushing back against competitors because it doesn't exist their natural state is a monopoly you know all of the talent in sports and the fans and the money inevitably flow to one seller so the czar i have in mind is probably czar is not even really the right word it would be more of a commission but one way to solve a lot of the anti-consumer anti-fan aspects of professional sports would be to regulate them
0: so, what would you what would you see as the most prevalent example of the the anti consumer lens of the current sports landscape?
2: Well, the biggest problem I think in a lot of people's eyes is the stadium issue, or the fact that you know cities and states are basically subsidizing private enterprises by giving them massive you know subsidies, tax breaks to build these extraordinarily expensive stadiums. Um, I've written about this a lot and read about it a lot over the years, um, and one of the things that's been really frustrating to me is, I think you, you read a lot about this, and it, it, it's almost kind of boring at this point, because the same story keeps happening, right? Like, yeah. a city is threatened, and they're going to, oh, we're going to move, and, you know, then we bring in the same people always, I think, it's that like, guy Victor Math, you know, like, it's, there's always, like, <laughs> this is a really dumb idea, and then they do yep. it anyway, yep. right? <laughs> Part of the reason that they're able to get away with these claims is a lot of the numbers are malleable. So you hear a lot of things like indirect spending, okay, which mean, or indirect jobs. So yeah. a lot of it is actually in the interpretation. You know, when economists who are independent have looked at examples throughout the years and looked at actual direct spending or direct jobs or direct economic benefits, they've always, fa- almost always found that they've been wildly overstated.
0: I like the word malleable. It's a nice, it's a nice, it's a nice, gentle way of saying lie.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: It's really interesting to me uh, that you use the language uh, that professional sports leagues engage in anti-consumer practices, because I agree with you completely. But I think uh, that maybe one of the most successful marketing marketing campaigns of any private company in the entire United States is a major sports team or league saying we're all about the fans because if you run any analysis of it on an economic level that is in no way true and um I guess I'm wondering like why do you think they're able to be so successful at that what what why are they able to so successfully run economic trains on Americans um without us sort of picking up on the ruse
2: I think let me back up and talk about the word anti-consumer because uh-huh. it's actually different from anti-fan. If the Seattle Seahawks who are my, you know, beloved team were to say, "Oh, we have to leave unless we get a new stadium," I as a fan would be like, "Great, take all of my money." Right? <laughs> you know, them building a new stadium would be what I would want as a fan. As a taxpayer, you know, there are millions of people who are maybe not fans who are getting screwed. So I think these, the teams really do put out a product that is good for fans, Hmm. um, while maybe not good for the public.
1: That's interesting. So maybe it has something to do if you fall into the bucket where you are both taxpayer and fan, um, you're getting your money's worth. (laughs)
2: Well, uh, cognitive dissonance though for someone like me or you know any fairly progressive sports fan knowing that these things happen yet still supporting i mean obviously forget that there's millions of areas in which there's cognitive dissonance but this yes. is one of them
0: yeah actually that's that's a that's one of my questions for you you know do you obviously do consider yourself a sports fan, as do we? Do you find that the things from like concussions to stadium deals to broken community benefit agreements like we have here in Brooklyn with the Barclays Arena, how much yeah. does that get in the way of you being a fan? How much does like writing about this stuff all the time kind of eclipse that?
2: Um, you know, I was thinking that the other day, a few of my friends and I were having a conversation about whether we would want the Hawks to go after Greg Hardy. Um, who is, you know, the defense band. He's extremely talented, um, was accused of domestic abuse and was uh didn't play for the Panthers last year, just people who don't know. And you know, he's very good and would probably be gettable at a low price right now, right? Yep. Um, so a long discussion about whether we would want that and and we all agreed that the level of frustration or just Moral objection would be too high <laughs> to enjoy the on field product, but you know, there are other things that I think don't get it, they, they just don't rise to the level of um halting my fandom, which you know is not perfect and a little bit um upsetting.
0: Sam and I have spent the last year uh therapying our, ourselves into supporting Nelson Cruz, Delman Young. And mm-hmm. sort of a murderer's row of people who do not have great off-the-field uh, yeah. histories.
1: Everth Cabrera this year.
0: <laughs> for a series of reasons. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing to me what I can talk myself into if you just give me some time.
2: Yeah. You know, and when we were talking about the thing, I was talking with Seahawks fans. And a few years ago, uh, you know, the Hawks had had a reputation for having several PED suspensions, which was wildly overblown. And a lot of suspensions were Uh-huh,
0: uh-huh.
2: <laughs> you know, I was... That didn't really impact any of our fandom, I think. So we were talking about how sort of the nature of the the crime or the offense really did affect whether or not we were able to sort of still enjoy the sport.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, um, just a moment ago when we were talking about how as someone who occupies both the taxpayer and fan bucket, how we sort of uh, negotiate that particular dilemma. And I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that as a, as you put it, fairly progressive sports fan, um, that means that you live a life that can be sometimes a little bit intellectually exhausting uh, because there are so many things to panic about and fret about. And one of the things that uh, appeals to me the most about baseball is is the way that it is an escape from all of that stuff. It feels like uh, entering this sort of fantastical headspace. And so... Uh, I wonder if one of the problems in thinking about all these issues is you really have to pick your arrows, sort of, because you don't want to pierce the, the kind of shell that you create for yourself when you engage with sports.
2: I think also there's a false dichotomy or there's, there's sort of pressure, pressure on, you know, using your consumption as a choice when, in fact, you can still consume sports and also take a stance. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. As a female football fan over the last year I'm constantly asked how do you still support the NFL? How do you So sure. and you know for me I've long felt that I can both continue to support the NFL and also object to things that are happening inside it.
0: Sure. Sure. I feel I feel the same way about my federal government.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, well and there's a I mean there's a really interesting thing in that where you know, uh, people say, people say that, I guess people tend to adopt this, this viewpoint that like, well, if you're against something, then, you know, you're not a true fan. And, you know, a big part of loving something is believing that it can be better.
2: Oh, you sound like president Obama.
1: Well, yeah. I, I may or may not have <laughs> exactly watched the, the Edmund Pettus bridge speech a few times.
2: Yeah. But I mean, with consumer, again, with like ethical consumerism, you know, I typed on my iPhone produced by t- children in China, you know what I mean?
0: Right, yep. right. Where do you draw those lines?
2: And, you know, I think there's a lot more value in sort of calling attention to the problems in sports rather than just showing them if you're a fan.
0: Sure, sure. Okay, so there are a few – there. there one argument against the czar plan that appeared, if nowhere else, <laughs> in the comments section of your article on ESPN's yes. website, which goes basically like this everything the government touches turns to sadness and ashes. Yeah. How do you uh, navigate that, <laughs> that concern?
2: Yeah. Is that the, co- the comment I started? I knew abroad wrote this. <laughs> oh God, I didn't
0: even see that. <laughs> that one. Was
2: a, yeah. I actually was kind of charmed by being called abroad. I don't think I've ever been called a <laughs> <laughs> it has a kind of
1: 1940s jauntiness to it, I guess.
2: This damn doesn't know which. Anyways. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that's, just the priest right? So, okay. the, power companies you know you could argue that about any government (laughs) agency right that they shouldn't exist because government agencies are right they're captive to the companies that you know work that are supposed to be regulated by them but if we didn't have any regulation at all for utilities or cable improbable as it is time warner would be even worse than they are
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's some nightmare fuel right there
2: you know right sleep on that so in my (laughs) mind um the commission would be have very limited powers. I don't want a commission interfering in sports, um, but more that they would have a few areas such as, you know, team sale and movement and expansion, blackouts, right? Which are, you know, speaking of bullshit. Um, yeah, really.
1: yeah.
2: Right? So, I mean, there are states that, like Iowa, where you can't even watch baseball on the Internet. So. Those are the areas in which I feel like commission could specifically have jurisdiction over.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one one of the points that you you make in your piece towards the end is that this wouldn't be uh, government suddenly intruding on the hallowed sacred province of sports. They're already bought into the game by virtue of all the taxation stuff that happens around issues like stadium construction.
2: Right, and with broadcasting, the government, the Congress, has specifically given them leeway to act in you know monopolistic ways. So, so you're absolutely right. The government is we're very much we're like investors that receive no dividends or have no <laughs> yeah uh, and voice.
0: Someone took a shot at this at one point, right? Legislatively, I mean.
2: Yeah. So, um, while researching this idea, you know, it's come up a few times over the last. 40 or so years, but there was actually a bill uh, that was introduced in 1972 uh, by a senator, I believe, from Kentucky aimed at doing basically everything we've been talking about for the exact same reasons. Uh, the commissioners, you know, Pete Rizal, Walter Kennedy, Valley Kuhn, they all came and you know, strenuously objected. Um, in fact, this didn't make into the story, but I found some editorials from the ni- from 1972 objecting to it. Um Chicago Tribune wrote Big Brother is closing in on sports. <laughs> <laughs> sports Illustrated, which apparently used to run short editorials, uh wrote that uh, it would be a grievous error. Uh so huh. yeah, yeah, but Howard Kazel loved the idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is in the in the seventies, right?
2: Uh-huh. I'm trying yeah, to think but- of
0: like the shift in the political the political moment from the seventies until now. Is, do you have any brilliant ideas for how to get a czar in there without getting tarred and feathered and run out of town the oh, yeah. socialist I mean, rail this
2: would never happen <laughs> <laughs> Drat. Um, the only way you can have anything like this work is if you have in, just, in a counterparty with power which would be an industry that would benefit from it I, that would as horribly cynical as that sound there's some reason to think maybe that um, Cable networks could potentially, like my employer, could potentially benefit from it. Um, <laughs> but I mean, this is the problem with all anti—you know—consumer issues, which is that people are not a counterweight to corporations.
1: Yeah. One of the things this makes me think is it's yet another example of why people need to go out and buy more tickets for the St. Saint Paul Saints and the uh, Sugarland <laughs> Skeeters and teams of that nature, so we can get them more of a voice here. <laughs>
2: And they never will, right? No, nope, I mean, not going to happen. Or, right. or
0: also convert more teams over to the Packers model.
2: Yeah, well, which the owners immediately voted after that happened to outlaw so never again, never again. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, exactly.
1: This is yeah. this is one of them. their dangerous ideas.
2: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's, that's uh, also
0: that's also a drum that we beat fairly regularly on this show. This is a. Uh, the goal here is to get a big enough following that we can crowdsource a Kickstarter-style version of uh, purchase the Orioles and convert them into a nonprofit serving the city of Baltimore. So when we do that, we'll, uh, we'll launch the uh, baseball czar movement.
2: Well, you know, there's some interesting, you know, when talking about stadium financing. A lot of stadiums have been funding, have been funded in large part now with uh, seat licenses, like the yeah. Niners Stadium. Uh, which I actually do not necessarily object to because those are sports fans deciding to basically pay for the stadium. So the consumer is actually purchasing the product.
1: Right,
0: right. Instead of a a vocal minority of taxpayers advocating for the product.
2: Yeah. That makes sense. It's like a Kickstarter, right? Being like, okay, can every, you know, Atlanta Falcons fan in the country pay $10? You could, you know, but...
0: Huh, that's an interesting take on that. I, I, I had sort of thought of that as another way for... Owners to 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 wring money out of the same population, but I guess it isn't the same population. You're right. It's it's people who are actively bought into the watching and the consuming of sports.
2: That's it is anti fan, but it would make a difference. It wouldn't be a passive contribution.
0: Right. All right. Well, so the article is America needs a sports czar. You can find it in the March second issue of ESPN the magazine. Our guest has been Mina Kimes, who is a senior writer for the, that very same ESPN, The Mag. Mina, what are you working
2: on next? So I write out the column comes out every two weeks. Um, and this one is about March Madness. So I have a couple coming about about college sports, always a ripe area for dangerous ideas. Yes, <laughs> indeed.
0: Someone I, I recently heard someone describe um, Jim Boheim of the, Syri- the, the recently disgraced Syracuse Orange as – a ceo who doesn't pay his employees
2: yeah or pretty much every (laughs) university and coach right yeah so that that'll come out i think next week
1: great well mina thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it and uh we hope uh we hope that we can help in some small way uh together facilitate (laughs) the progressive revolution in professional sports
2: let's do it thanks so much for having me
0: That is that uh, is all the time that we have on episode 118 of Baltimore I'm
1: sure you're disappointed. I know we are, that we're out of time. Uh, much like Major League Baseball this year, we're unfortunately subject to a clock. And... <laughs> Which we routinely violate, and only through umpire discretion are we allowed to continue to play. <laughs> I wonder if people know just how much is cut out of these shows. <laughs> Actually, maybe we shouldn't say that, because... What is left in, you could argue, (laughs) should also be cut. It's not, you know, so well hewn. Don't worry. uh, For
0: episode 200, we have planned a um, 72-hour extended
1: (laughs) cutting room floor episode. Hey, speaking of episode 200 and possibly getting there, have you noticed, Alan Smith, that, you know, we made a big deal around here (laughs) about getting to episode 100? Yeah. And as I cast a gaze around the other shows in the Baltimore Sports Report Network, of which we're a proud member, uh, we're not the only members of the Century
0: Club anymore. Nope, nope. Some people caught us. Some people uh, who left the, the Baltimore Sports Report Network caught us. Some people who are still there have caught us. Um, Orioles, Spastics, not on that list. <laughs> <laughs> but we see you. Section three three six. We see you, bird's eye view. Come with the king. You best not miss. That's fellas. right, fellas. And and let's we're speak. stepping it up. We're step this year. We will put out more episodes than anyone else. Quantity, not quality. <laughs> so look out, look out, fellas. <laughs> we're gonna start doing midweek special episodes just to juice our numbers. <laughs> this is gonna be like the Sosa Bonds race all over again.
1: Do we know? Do we know if Section Three Thirty? What the hell am I even saying? So yeah, well you know, uh, <laughs> hey man, I think I would be pleased to be referred to as the Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, or Mark McGuire. Did you see of that Baltimore Sammy Sosa is white now? Podcast. What? He like has changed his. He's, he went Michael Jackson. It's really weird looking.
0: Like on purpose, or does oh, he no, have no, a disorder? Serious. No, no, he's been he's been doing all sorts of
1: facial lightening things. It's creepy as hell. Because we all know uh, being white is a disorder. <laughs> all right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, is that okay to say? How weird is that? That to, How weird is that? As a thing to say, how weird is that? Well, it's, should we I, cut it's it out? either going to be in this episode or in the 200th episode, so people will have to hear it at some point. Okay. All right. Well, folks, uh, the music on the show, as always, was our theme song by Marshall York. The song Birdland by Weather Report, which plays between segments. The song Working for Another Song by Town Hall. And playing behind me right now, it's Kicking My Heart Around by The Black Crows. As always, ladies and gentlemen, you can find our show at Bmorons.com. You can find us on Twitter, Twitter.com slash Why do I always say the full URL? <laughs> you, guys at know bemorons, at you know how Twitter works. At you know. Ignore this fool. You know how Twitter works. And uh, what else do I want to tell you? Oh, if you have some time to leave us an iTunes review, Yeah, we would appreciate that. We'd appreciate
0: that, because um, you know, right now we don't know how you feel about us. That's true. And and I go through my day wondering exactly how you feel about us. I'm not gonna lie, guys. Alan is in a fragile state. I so so please don't. Not only would you would it be great if you left a review, but if it's below three stars,
1: I'm I'm really gonna have a trouble with it. He needs you now he needs you now. Um, Alan, I, I have just one more question for you. Shoot. Um, and uh, it, it is the following. Um, what would you call Henry Urudia if he were the title of um, a Henry James novel, which could be interpreted to... Be an accurate metaphor for how frustrating it is to watch the degradation of Henry Rudia's career. Did you, you can, stay you, with me? on that? You can tell that we really script these out beforehand. Yeah, but no, I'm. I, I think I said that the way I wanted to. I know. I, I don't. I don't really answer. Uh, you would call him Henry Turn of the Screw Rudia. <laughs> Very nice. Adios.